Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I thank you for being with me. The resurrection of Jesus is, by all accounts, the cornerstone of Christian faith. Remove the resurrection, and you really see Christianity collapse unto itself. Uh, We want to spend uh, the next hour discussing the resurrection of Jesus and take a look at the case for the resurrection. My guest, Dr. Gary Habermas, he's a distinguished research professor of apologetics and philosophy at Liberty University, where he also chairs the Department of Philosophy. He is the author or editor of 37 books, including 18 on the resurrection, including The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. You can uh, follow Gary's work at Gary Habermas, that's H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S dot com. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you back with me. Thanks. Well, thank you, Al. It's good to be on with you again. Let's talk about uh, the danger of these interviews on a topic like this is that so, our listeners are already so well persuaded um, that it's sometimes it's difficult to get back and get the let people feel again uh, the strength of the case for the resurrection. So let me start with some real basic questions here. Sure. The importance of the resurrection. Do you agree that without the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity collapses? Well, yeah, and of course we could start very simply with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, where twice, in the space of just a few verses, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is vain. And I, I told my students, how long do you have to look in the New Testament before you find a verse that says, if it's not for this, faith is vain. Right. Because, I mean, you know, after Hebrews 11.1 1 and Hebrews 11.6 on the importance of faith, it's pretty difficult to say, yeah, and by the way, it's worth nothing if. Right. But that if would be, if there's no resurrection of Jesus, there's nothing or no one in whom we can put our faith. I mean, in Acts 2 and Acts 13, the contrast is made between David, who died, and his body, uh, you know, went to dust like everybody's. But the the speaker, uh, Peter in the first passage and Paul in the second one, says, but that had happened to Jesus. And so truly something is different here. But I mean, what is it we're believing in if that never happened? Then it looks like Jesus is very much like David and his body returned to dust. So the apostles are just making the point that this is very unique. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when we say resurrection, what are we talking about? Again, within historic Orthodox Christian understanding, what are, right. what is a resurrection? Well, interestingly enough, the the word, the the, the root word, means uh, a bodily event. It, it it's a combination word that actually means to stand up again. Hmm. So, as I often kind of unpack that in lectures, I'll say what the word means is when Paul says, for, when Paul, well, Paul doesn't say it, Paul's quoting a creed, and the creed says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose and appeared. Four things there, dead, buried, rose, appeared. And that's exactly the sequence, what the word resurrection means, is that what goes down is what comes out. So true, there's there's changes, as he goes on to say. The the seed that's planted is not the plant that comes out. Mm-hmm. There's a change. I mean, Jesus could do different things in his, in his 
body is glorified, and then later on the way to Damascus, Paul is blinded, we're told. So there are changes, but the point is that, that a physical body went down, and a lot more than a ghost came out of the grave. Something, uh, well, I like Tom Wright's phrase where he, he talks about the resurrection uh, being very, very bodily, and that's accompanied by his 550-page word study on anastasis and agarou, the Greek, the primary Greek words for raised. And anyway, that compound phrase means to stand again. You put the person down, and they're not standing, they're not doing anything, they're dead. And then later, that same body comes out mm -hmm. and is revivified and walks and talks, and in Jesus' case, has the scars intact. So those who would say, well, resurrection is really about, uh, it, it's just, quote, metaphorical, um, or it's just code for immortality, what do you say to them? Well, it depends on who I'm talking to, and if it's a public dialogue or if I'm just talking to somebody privately or having a con you know a conference call or chat on the phone. Sure. But that is a common move from those who want to get rid of the the bodily aspect, and it could come from different kinds of philosophical positions. But sometimes you're tempted to think that, like in the 19th century, <clears throat> when German liberalism uh, ran the day and and ran roughshod over many of the orthodox views at that time, their founding philosophy, the philosophy that stood behind German liberalism, was a type of German idealism. And it was inspired by people like Plato, mm -hmm. who said that when you die your your spirit flees the body, and that was a very positive thing, because for Plato, the body wasn't evil for Plato, that's later Gnosticism, but for Plato, the body was a pain, because, you know, just when you're getting into that good book and you're learning some new information, you get hungry, <laughs> uh, or you got to get up and walk around because your legs are sore, you know. Right. And so he said, we can we can go encumbered to the heavens. And you you think that behind some people today are still some of that platonic you know, the spirit is good and the body is not good and we'd rather be away from this. But that's not the New Testament hope. Yeah. Uh, so we've got something very different here than just the immortality of the soul or some metaphorical notion of persistence. Uh, right. How is it different than, say, a resuscitation, as in the case of Lazarus? Sure. Now, in Lazarus's condition, or in, in somebody else's, you know, Jesus raised a few people from the dead, and of course you see it in the book of Acts, too. And when people are raised, it is a person who, while dead, was not dead very long. Now, Lazarus for four days, that, that's longer. But for the most part, these people are resuming their earthly life, mm -hmm. and all of them die again. They all need to right. die uh, a second time, and so their body comes back, and that's a blessing to the you know sisters Mary Martha. That that's a blessing to the family, but uh, it's not anything like the resurrected body that does not have to die again, that lives on for eternity, that is later glorified, and um, uh, you know lasts forever. It's not. It's very much more than a body that a spirit that flees to right. the heavens like like Plato thought. So a, a resurrected body, as opposed to a resuscitated body, does it, it, does it have a, a different uh, quality of existence? 
Yeah, it, it would be a very different quality. You know, here's a here's an interesting word study. In the New Testament, there are a couple of, of words for what results. I mean, there's over 300 verses in the New Testament on the resurrection. And many of those verses tell us what is true theologically because the resurrection is true. Mm-hmm. And the doctrine that is most often related to the resurrection of Jesus is the resurrection of believers, uh, almost 20 times in the New Testament. Now, my point here is that two of the words that are used to describe what the believers are going to get because of Jesus' resurrection, the two words, one is eternal. And in English, we think eternal means unending life. Right, and right. so we assume that's what the Greek means. And the Greek doesn't, I mean, you don't want to mislead people, say, oh, that's not what it like what it means. And you go, what? We're not going to live forever? <laughs> That's not the point at all. But the word there for eternal, in Greek, like John 3.16, the, the word there for eternal is a word meaning quality. It means sharing God's life. Yes. Eternal life is a kind of life from which you could never be bored, because it is, it is uh, created by God himself. The second word is immortal, and it's used only a few times in the New Testament, and it means it is the word that we use for unending. Okay. Uh, immortality means you will never die. So those two phrases, you will never die, and it's really, really good, you get the quality and the quantity. Both those are characteristics of the resurrection body precisely because they were characteristics of Jesus' resurrection body. So in one sense, does the regenerate believer today already possess in some measure eternal life? That's correct. That is correct. And that you find that especially in the Gospel of John, and not not only in John, but you read over and over again um, where Jesus says, He who believes in me hath everlasting life, present mm-hmm. tense. Mm-hmm. And you see that in 1 John. I mean, 1 John 5.13, you can know you have eternal life. Well, one of the reasons you can know you have eternal life, because it's already begun. And eternal life, I mean, here's a, here's a statement from, as far as I, I know, a secular philosopher, and he makes a, a really interesting comment. But he says, if you will be immortal in the future, you are already immortal now. Hmm. That's just that's just one of those. Yeah. Wow. Well, let me sit there and think about this for a minute. <laughs> so. Right. Right. Um, let Let me ask. Many people think that in the ancient world, people were more gullible than we are today. That they tended to have, uh, you know, they were easier to convince of strange, paranormal, uh, supernatural experiences. Were ancient people more gullible than we are? I don't want to make a, a bigger deal out of this than we have to, but I think it would be inaccurate or disingenuous of me to say, oh, no, 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 they, they were no more gullible than we are. I would think if, with the word, if the key word is open, are they really open to those kind of things? I think they were more open in those days, but two comments. Uh, number one, it was not always so. In one instance in the Gospel, St. John, we read that a voice from heaven— uh, is heard, and it's a voice of 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 co- a compliment concerning the father giving a compliment concerning the son, and the people who are standing there, someone say somebody says, "Whoa, an angel spoken," and somebody else says, "No, it's thunder." 
And and that kind of response, it's an angel, no, it's thunder. Mm-hmm. That kind of response means right. that people just didn't take everything supernaturally. That's right. But but secondly, maybe this is a commentary about us. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Maybe they overdid it, and we underdo it. In other words, I think of a book like the two-volume uh, uh, by Craig Keener, entitled yes. Miracles, right. where he has, he doesn't even know, I mean, I'm good friends with Craig, and, and I'll say, Craig, how many cases do you have in those two volumes? I don't know, but I bet you there's over a thousand cases in there of current miraculous reports. Even. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, they're all over the place, and we just, we just go, no, 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 prove it, prove it, prove it, when they're more common than that. So we need to come up a little bit, and they needed to calm down a little bit. Okay, hold it there, Gary, we'll be right back. Good afternoon, I'm Al Crestor. We'll be Dr. Gary Habermas. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Gary, in fact, uh, his, his, his career, you might say, has been committed to understanding, explicating, and defending the resurrection of Christ. He's the author or editor of 18 books on the resurrection, including the case for the resurrection of Jesus. And we closed last segment by talking about ancient attitudes regarding miracles or the supernatural, uh, while indeed they were more open to supernatural influences than we are. Generally speaking, though, didn't they believe that dead men stay dead, generally speaking? Well, yeah, they, they definitely did. In fact, all you got to do is is read, uh, you know, John 11. It, you know, even if people say, ah, oh, it's a book of John, that's, you know, Critics don't like it as much as the other Gospels. Well, that's irrelevant. If you just read what's going on in John 11, you get a sense of what people thought in the first century. And they were sad to death. You know, when Lazarus died, they felt like that too. The women went out to the tomb. The the sisters went out to the tomb. They were weeping together. Jesus wept. Um, You know, it's just a really sad scene there. And we add that Jesus wept, even though he knew he would be raising Lazarus from the dead. So, sure, people knew death was the end. In fact, the way Jews buried, they buried for resurrection, because they uh, uh, bound up the body, and they put the body in the tomb. And one year later, they came back and reburied the bones by putting them in a stone coffin, uh, a bone box called Mm -hmm. an ossuary. But that was a year later, so, you know, they had, everything was viewed toward eternity, and by implication, their relationship with God. So it was a different culture, because it revolved around their spiritual sense of the meaning uh, of the world. Uh, Let's go to um, the idea of what counts for evidence in in the claim. what we have is we have uh, statements of St. Paul, we have the Gospels, um, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. What do you think counts for for an unbeliever, somebody who just believes that categorically dead men stay dead? What right. would you, where would you begin the conversation? Um, I have different ways I make this move. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the, the data I use, and I'll tell you that I bring it in at different points in the discussion. Sure, go ahead. But, but if a guy is saying to me, yeah, 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 we know there's nothing like that, 
um, you know, the difference between your worldview and my worldview, they're saying this to me, the difference between your worldview and my worldview is you you believe in Narnia or Middle Earth. You think there's another world out there, and I just think what you're looking at is a world there is. And I will often go, time out, time out, let's talk here for a minute. And I will flip the conversation from Jesus' resurrection to near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And next to the resurrection, it's the topic that I've done the most research in. I've been researching on the near-death topic since 1972, actually. And and there there is a lot of data. In fact, I just had a, a written debate with a guy, and I was summarizing 300 evidential cases for NDEs some of which the evidence is virtually irrefutable. I mean, the evidence that there's consciousness after death. Is, in other words, uh, a, a recent medical book that came out said that um, up to 30 million people in the Western world alone, North America and Western Europe, have experienced near-death exper- uh, experiences. And so I will say to that guy in a conversation, I'll say, whoa, 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 30 million people can't be wrong when they say they've been somewhere else. And 300 of those cases are well evident. So I'll just say, okay, so what do you think about that? There is another world. And if there's another world, and if there's an afterlife, why are you balking when I talk about resurrection? So sometimes I come at it that way. That NDEs sort of open the field. I I would never do this and get to an occult topic, but NDEs are rather neutral in the sense that, you know, it, it's not the guy's fault. He died. <laughs> right, you know, right. He died. He had a heart attack. That's not his fault. But he uh, he later is going to say it was the most meaningful experience of my life. I'm not afraid of death. Well, that sounds like what the New Testament says about the resurrection too. In Hebrews two fourteen and fifteen says Christ came to to take away from us the fear of death. So oftentimes, if somebody says there's no world like that, I'll say uh, there is, even according to science. If you want to do the medical data on uh, NDEs. But if they don't want to just talk about, like, okay, okay, drop NDEs. Let's just talk about resurrection. I'll make a provocative statement that I hope will make them, you know, want more. And, and that's the way I argue for resurrection. I call it the uh, minimal facts argument. Right. So what I do is I say to them, I will take a half dozen facts, which virtually every New Testament scholar. Now, he's got to be a scholar, not somebody just going off and telling me their view. But somebody who's a scholar, let's say a terminal degree in a relevant field to New Testament studies, I will take six facts that I can tell you ahead of time they're going to concede because scholars know the data behind these six. And my point is, even if they don't take the Bible to be inspired, those facts that they grant as well attested, are enough to show that the resurrection happened. So I'll make some provocative comment where I'll say, on your data, yeah. Jesus was raised from the dead. And of course they'll want to say, well, I doubt it. And then we start talking about it, and I'll say, okay, now get yourself out of this little deal. You're going to concede these six facts. Um, a, a resurrection comes from those facts. Okay. How are you going to get yourself out of them? Well, you know, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Fine, let's talk about that. And when they see in just a few moments that those other options are not going to work with the data, uh, I think they might whistle a different tune on this. Right. So what you claim there's, there's a, a set of 
minimal facts that have the the overwhelming consensus of scholars in the relevant fields uh, agree uh, these are uh, incontrovertible facts. We've got a, a set of them here. And those right. facts require an explanation. And, Correct. And your claim would be then that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the only um, <clears throat> event that can account for those indisputable facts. Is that the... Right. The, and, okay. and when they make the comment, because this is the most common... Fewer and fewer are trying to come up with alternate views today. Fewer and fewer, because they see the data and they just let it lie. But the, but the comment you hear the most today, that I hear the most, rather than, well, I'll make up this theory, is they'll say what we already discussed. They'll say, yeah, but your view requires me to believe in Narnia, and anything is more... Uh, you know, more likely to be true than a real live Narnia. And yeah. I'll say, that's when I say, time out, let's talk about near-death experiences. Um, so if you take that away from them, you believe in a supernatural world, I don't. So I'm not going to go to resurrection from these facts. Right. Right. My point is, well, you better if there's an afterlife. I mean, if there's all, if we already know there's an afterlife, and I'm sitting here and talking about a specific case of afterlife, i.e. the resurrection, you better unravel the scientific and rational and historical case for the whole ball of wax before you start being critical of what you're talking about. Yeah, because you're, because you're not dealing with the full set of uh, observations, which now include NDEs. Correct. Yeah. Correct. In a world where we know there is consciousness after death, don't laugh or roll your eyes when I say the New Testament teaches a world where there's consciousness after death. And they'll say, well, yeah, but there's a world of difference between scientific NDEs in a laboratory or an operating room and resurrection. I'll say, yeah, but what they both have in common is consciousness extended beyond the death of the body. So Lazarus was somewhere when his body was in the grave for four days. And you know, interestingly, that's what Jesus says to the two sisters when they say, you know, if if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, those who live and believe in me, though they were dead, yet shall they live. Yeah. He didn't pass out of existence. Right. When right. He, you know, and he asked the ladies, and, and they do a good job with the Jewish theology exam. He says, do you believe you'll see your brother again? And And, and the gals go, well, yeah, duh, at the last day, um, but I don't want to wait till last <laughs> right, day to see him right, again. Right, right. And Jesus is basically saying, look, true, you can't see him now, that's the sting of death, but here's the good news. He hasn't evaporated into space, he is alive and doing well. And like I told my children when their mom died uh, in 1995, died of stomach cancer, mm-hmm. we had four children at home, the youngest was only nine years old, and I told them, and it, it seemed to comfort them a lot. Uh, I said, "I said, kids, weep for yourselves, be sorrowful for yourselves, but don't be sorrowful for mom, because you could do it NDE wise, you could do it New Testament wise." In Philippians one twenty three, Paul says, "I prefer to die and be with Christ, which is better by far." And I tell them, kids, your mom, and I deeply believe this. I said, kids, your mom wouldn't come back if she had the chance. Right. Now, you feel right. sorry for her because you can't see her, 
but she wouldn't come back, and he know she knows you're going to be joining her someday. So just you know, calm down. She's fine. Yeah. Mom is fine. Now be fo- be sorrowful, but don't worry about mom. Right. And I think that's the New Testament hope, where Paul says, "I prefer to you know to live as Christ, to die is gain." And then two verses later, he says, "I prefer." to die and be with Christ, but basically I have a job to do, so I'm going to stay here with you, Philippians, and we're going to try to work this thing out together, you know. Let's go over some of these minimal facts. Uh, Sure. The first one would be what? Jesus was dead. He was crucified, and he was dead. Right. And, and, you know, I tell people that that first one has nothing to do with the resurrection, but in order to have a resurrection, the man has to be dead. Lazarus had to be dead in the tomb before Jesus could raise a dead man, and and so he he's crucified and dead. Dom, Dom, John Dominic Crossan, a co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, right. and Marcus Borg, two of the best. Marcus Borg just died a few years ago, but they're two of the best theologians of this generation. They both say almost identically in different works that the resur- that the crucifixion of Jesus is the best established fact in the ancient world. It's they would never question it for a second, and that's where critics are. I mean, these six facts that I'll use with you, they're conceded by 90-something percent of yeah. the people writing. You say, well, how do you know that? And I'll say, well, because I counted. <laughs> I've gone through their work. Not many people have counted, but you have. <laughs> no. Well, my document, my document where I simply put their views together, no debate, just write their views down, is 1,500 pages long. So <laughs> it's sort of like been there, done that. And yeah, they start with that, and they'll give you that. Hold it there, Gary. We'll come back, and we'll go through the minimal facts that are conceded by uh, Again, the lead world scholars in every of these fields, and I think you'll be surprised at the certainty with which, on a purely human level, we know the resurrection occurred. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Gary Habermas, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. What is the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? We're looking at some a collection of facts which are not disputed. For instance, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, not disputed. Before we go any further with this, let me just ask you, when you're looking at the New Testament, as we're talking today, we're talking about it just purely as a historical document for our purposes today. Is that right? Right. A lot of people, critics, especially the kind that are not scholars, the kind that just kind of hear something about Christianity, they just go off, but they don't have any background, scholarly background for doing that. They'll say, well, you Christians, you're using the New Testament, and that's a piece of propaganda, and propaganda in the sense that these are people writing about their views in a field where they already hold the views. So, yes, you know, it's a prejudice document. That's not the way scholars treat it. The scholars, well, let's put it this way. When I did my dissertation on the resurrection at Secular University, right there in your backyard at uh, Michigan State yeah, University. Yeah, I remember, yeah. When I did that, the director of my program, as we were ending the meeting, where they were telling me that I could do it on the resurrection. The fellow said to me, he said, hey, look, don't tell us, in your dissertation, don't tell us the resurrection happened because the New Testament says so. I mean, don't just give us verses and leave it. He said, no, now look, you're free to use the New Testament, but you can only use texts that have reasons for accepting those texts. You can only use texts that stand up to critical questioning. And that's fair. Sure. Uh, and basically what he was saying, the way I interpreted him was saying something like this, yeah, we're liberal here, we're, we're not going to hold your view overall, but here's where we're fair. We're fair liberals, he was saying. Anything you can provide evidence for, 
we don't have to agree with you. Make a good thesis and give us good evidence, and you're good to go. That's what the dissertation should be. So that's what I did. And working on the dissertation, the result I kind of came away with was this view of the minimal facts. I I will use data that if a Christian believes in the inspiration of the New Testament, of course they believe this data. But if a skeptic, a skeptical scholar now, doesn't think the New Testament's inspired, they will still share these facts because they are well attested. Right. And they have historical checks and balances, the same rules historians use. They have checks and balances for determining when something in a report is most likely true and when it is not. Okay. First fact, the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Okay. And this is the most important one. The disciples afterwards had experiences now, they proclaimed it very shortly after, but that's going to be the next point. The disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. That's right. The disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. Bargerman, the atheist New Testament scholar, is a good example of this. He says in one of his books, Jesus the Apocalyptic Prophet, he says, do I have any problem saying the disciples believe they saw the risen Jesus? He said, no. He said, history shows this to be true. You know, he's going to want to discuss with you what those experiences might be. Right. But the fact that they had real experiences that they thought were resurrection, no, he said, it's as firm a historical fact as you can get. And that's what I mean about him being an atheist New Testament scholar, but saying we can agree on this piece of uh, evidence. Right, right. Thirdly, they proclaimed it immediately. You go, what's immediate? A critic would say, what's immediate? The Gospel of Mark doesn't come for 40 years. Well, first of all, Forty years for Mark is great when you consider that the earliest biography of Alexander that we have is almost 300 years later. And the stories of Buddha, in one recent book, Collected Stories of Buddha, are 500 to 800 years after he died. So 40 years for a gospel is good, but that's not what I mean. When I say the resurrection discussion came early in the Church, Bargerman himself, again, the atheist New Testament scholar, Bargerman says we can track the earliest proclamation to a one to two years after the cross. Yeah. So yeah, Mark's plus 40, but the earliest reports we have are one to two years later, so that is early in caps. And, and again, these uh, are public proclamations, too. This is public, and this view, the view I just gave, that the resurrection proclamation came a year or two after, and where do you find that? Well, the New Testament is full of little tiny creedal statements, little tiny snippets. There's a couple dozen of them. And if the earliest book, as many scholars think, is First Thessalonians, and if that's placed about 50 A.D., so it cuts the difference between Jesus' death and Mark, cuts mm-hmm. it in half. So First Thessalonians is plus 20, Mark is probably plus 40. When First Thessalonians is written, some of those creeds are in there. So these creeds have to predate 20. That's right. And you ask, how old are these? And uh, Paul says twice in 1 Corinthians, for example, 11 and 15, that he gave the Corinthians what he was given. He passed on tradition. Well, many scholars, it's a consensus view today, is that when Paul said yes to Jesus on the way to Damascus, these teachings, if not the creeds themselves, were already in existence. So they were there between the cross and Paul's conversion, which is plus two or three years. Yes. So I mean, that's Paul early. is a little younger contemporary of Jesus, right? Yeah, younger, older would be hard to say. Okay. But uh, yes, he was definitely contemporary of Jesus, and most scholars put his conversion uh, on the way to Damascus at about two to three years after the cross. Okay. 
so very, very early, and these things were already in existence. Most scholars think that the report Paul got in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, that list of appearances, they think it was already around when Paul first came to Christ. That's right. And then the fourth fact is that they turned the world upside down. I mean, in Acts chapter 4, not long after the death of Jesus, in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, the temple guard are upset because they find the disciples preaching. And in Acts 4, 2, here's what it says. They were preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In other words, he was raised, and believers will be raised. That was our first message. And later in that same chapter, 433, we're told that they that their message was the message of the resurrection. So we're back to your lead-off point in the program, that it was the center of, of faith. Yeah. So they proclaimed it to the point where they were willing to die for this message. And you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do you know they were willing to die? You're making a, a judgment based on their thought life, and you don't know what their thought life is. And I'm going to say, excuse me, I'm going to judge the thought life the way we judge everybody's thought life. We judge by their actions. And if these guys continued to walk into the lion's den, metaphorically, if they continued to place themselves in the line of fire where things could happen, like the long list that Paul gives repeatedly of all the things he suffered, then guess what? They really believed what they were teaching. Right, so right. much so that you could do what you want to them. They knew that they were going to a better place again, as Paul says in Philippians 1. So that's four. And then two unbelievers. I separate them because they're separate cases. James and Paul yes. are both unbelievers, as far as we know. Both become believers, as far as we know, for the first time. When Paul, for sure, but also James when they, too, thought they saw the risen Jesus alive. So mm -hmm. you have two skeptics in there. And so when people say, well, this is propaganda for believers, you go, well, you go tell James that. Yeah. You go tell Paul that. Oh. They were not believers. That's right. So and, those six facts, and then you have to ask, what can you do to explain those? What about the now, empty, what about the empty little, tomb? I was going to say, okay. one that lags behind the six. Okay, there's probably more evidences for the empty tomb than any of the other six. But I don't put them in the six because the two definitions that I, the two arguments that I use, what do you have to have before you have a minimal fact? One is a lot of evidence for that fact. But secondly, the critical community, critical scholarship is about 90-something percent convinced that those facts are true. Well, the empty tomb lags behind on that. Critics are about 75 percent of critics concede the, the empty tomb. Okay. 65 to 75 percent of critics uh, attest the empty tomb. So it lags a little bit on skeptical agreement. But the evidence, I mean, I've given lectures, I've got a chapter coming out in a book where I have 22 evidences for the empty tomb. That's a, 22 evidences according to the way critics count evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of evidences. So I, I often call it six plus one. Okay. The plus one being re, uh, the empty tomb. Okay. Okay. So those facts, again, are up in the 90% of scholars in those fields agree with these, mm -hmm. that these are, these are indisputable facts. Now the question mm -hmm. is what explains, what accounts for those facts? We believe it's the bodily resurrection of Jesus. What is, how else do they deal with it? Yeah, now, now again, the, you know, we all do this at times, so I'm not trying to get on their case. But they can get a little smart alecky sometimes, and they might say, yeah, you think it's resurrection, you and Tolkien, 
you and Lewis and Narnia, you guys <laughs> right. think there's another world out there, and that's when I go, time out, time out, time out, you want to discuss another world? Let's discuss another world. But if, but if we already know that there is an afterlife, and now we look at the evidence for resurrection, you can't say, you and your storybook, resurrection story, if there's already a storybook, let's talk about, in other words, afterlife. If there's already an afterlife, Let's talk about the specific manifestation. And you try to get out of the resurrection data. You know, Bart Ehrman, in one of his latest books, he again is the uh, atheist New Testament scholar, he says um, you cannot, by history, prove the resurrection. Now, Christians could already be getting kind of huffy, and, but let him finish the sentence, and here's how he finishes it. History can't prove the resurrection, and history can't disprove it either. Yeah. Yeah. And then Urban, who used to be an evangelical, right. Bart Urban said, he said, I used to relish it when I would talk to an unbeliever and they would make up theories about explaining the data. I would love them to, because when they make up a theory, he said, I'll tell you what's going to happen to you with believers. He said, they're going to pounce on you and tell you why those, their theories don't work. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy, Al. Two New Testament scholars, prominent scholars, Pincus Lapide, mm-hmm. a Jewish, right. not Christian, Jewish, yep. Ph.D. New Testament scholar, and Geza Vermesh, professor of Jewish history at Oxford University, both of them wrote whole books on the resurrection. One of them, Pincus Lapide, he argues that the resurrection really happened. Right. And Geza Vermesh, the second one, he says, yeah, I don't really know what's going on here, and he kind of leaves it a question mark. But both of them, Lapid and Geza Vermesh, both Jewish, non-Christians, they would, that's their own word, they say none of the naturalistic theories work. Right. The naturalist explanations cannot explain these facts away. Yeah. Got about, uh, that's amazing. Got about 60 seconds left, Gary. Okay. Um, where uh, so? Where should believers? Uh, what should believers take from our conversation today? I think you know what. I would like to stop and say, okay, I'll um, let's talk about these ten theological facts that are changed, true or false, by virtue of the resurrection. But if I could just take one of them, I would go back to an earlier conversation that you've already set us up for, and I would say, what makes Paul say in Philippians chapter one? Uh, verse 21. For me, I've heard a lot of sermons on to live as Christ. I haven't heard too many sermons on to die as gain. Hmm. But Paul was totally convinced that dying was a good step. It was gain. And then two verses later, he tells you why. I prefer to die and be with Christ, which is better by far. That's an affirmative, uh, a double affirmative in the in the Greek. It's often translated, it's better, comma, far better. And I think if that's what the resurrection does. What it does in a sentence or two is put us on the yellow brick road, to give another one of these uh, Narnia-type illustrations, puts us on the yellow brick road on a trek to the Emerald City. And when we're talking at the Easter time about resurrection and salvation and moving toward the city, we should keep on track. Don't let people get you off. Don't let people say, hey, isn't there genocide in the Old Testament? What do you do with creation verses? What about the time at the end? I'll say, yeah, 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 we can we can tease around about these things, but I want to stay on the yellow brick road. I want to head to the Emerald City, because that really is the Christian hope, to Amen. stay on that track of what the gospel is. Amen. 
Gary, thanks so much. Great talking to you again. I wish you continued success. Thank you. Al, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Dr. Gary Habermas, again, we'll have all information. You can follow up on the great work that he's done over the years at AveMariaRadio.net. I'm Al Cresta.